Hello, Rebecca. Hi, John. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis based on my newsletter, News Items. It's Monday, July 19th. John, what do you want to talk about today? Let's talk about the floods that hit Western Europe last week and how they might affect upcoming federal elections in Germany. Let's also look at a recent report that quantifies the polling error in last year's elections in the U.S. and tries to explain what caused them. How about you? I want to talk about Jay Powell's potential reappointment as chair of the Federal Reserve, and I want to get into index funds, passive strategies having grown to more than $16 trillion. All right, before we get to those items, let's start with two science and tech headlines. First, Freedom Day has arrived. That's the name British tabloids have given to the day pandemic restrictions end in England, courtesy of Prime Minister Boris Johnson. More than 68% of the UK's adult population has been double vaccinated, and Reuters reports that if that high rate proves effective in reducing serious infections and deaths, even as the number of cases goes up, well, that could be a viable path to beating the pandemic. The other possibility is that yet another wave of COVID-19 leads to yet another lockdown. Even Johnson and his top finance official went into self-isolation on Sunday after being notified by the health service's test and trace app. More than 500,000 people have received a similar notice in the last week after having come into contact with someone who tested positive. John, is this a boneheaded move by the prime minister or what? I don't, you know, I mean, what, what was the harm in waiting? I, I really mm-hmm. don't. I'm surprised that they went ahead with it, given the Delta variant. And there are pictures of it in the papers today mm-hmm. and on the web today of people going to nightclubs and jamming in, you know. And you just think to yourself, oh, my God. I mean, we can't possibly be that stupid. But yeah. apparently we are. And let's hope that, you know, something like herd immunity has been reached and there won't be a disastrous outcome. I understand aspects of the economic argument for relaxing some restrictions in the UK during the summertime. Why does it have to be all or nothing? Why do they have to go big or go home? It seems unnecessary. Yeah, I, I just subscribed to Dominic Cummings' Substack. Oh, yeah? <laughs> and uh, it cost me whatever it cost me. But, uh, you know, he's, he's the premier political strategist, uh, certainly in the United Kingdom. And what you learn from reading his blog is that the Johnson administration, if you will, is hyper alert to political cost benefit. Johnson's thing is this will lead to more economic activity, which will be beneficial to my administration and to the country, and the risk is worth taking. They're rolling the dice, and I think this is more about eating into labor strongholds in the North and jump-starting local economies. Normalcy is good for Johnson. It's good for the country if it works. All right, let's move on. China was the only country to see continued growth in robotics last year. Sales of industrial robots went up 19%, according to recent data from the International Federation of Robotics. By comparison, the world as a whole saw a 2% dip. The Wire China reports that just as in the U.S., growing automation may fuel fears of lost jobs for millions of Chinese workers, especially in manufacturing. John, what do you make of China's fast adoption of industrial robots? 
you know, the, the goal, as stated by Xi and various members of the Xi regime, is to advance technologically so that yeah. China will surpass the U.S. by some date, whether it's 225 or 230. Yeah. That's a national goal. Robotics is a huge piece of that. Um, so well, it's also, if I can interject, China is facing a demographic crisis because of their one-child policy. They have a labor shortage, right? Yes. They need robots. Because right. they don't have enough people. Right. You also have to think about, and this is an area where Investable Universe is extremely committed, 5G. 5G standard essential patents, 5G technology standards, industrial robotics are like the number one use case for 5G globally. And so really? this is where China is. So, yep. Yep. Say why. Because the network standard is what enables large numbers of sort of decentrally managed industrial machines to operate on the same network. You need a 5G network to make that happen. Wow. Yeah. Well, let's move on to some news items. What do you say? Yeah, let's do that. Let's do it. Nearly 200 people are dead after last week's devastating floods in Western Europe. Hundreds more are still missing. Germany was hit the hardest, and the disaster could make climate change a huge issue in the upcoming federal elections in September. That would, you would think, benefit the Greens, who have always focused on protecting the environment. From late April through mid-May, the Greens actually led in the polls before falling behind the ruling Christian Democratic Union. Annalena Baerbach, the Green candidate for chancellor, has been accused of plagiarism and resume padding. If the Greens managed to win this fall, it would be a massive upset. However, the CDU's Armin Laschet, Angela Merkel's would-be successor, is generally seen as uninspiring even within the center-right. And he recently apologized after he was seen laughing in the background of a press conference about the floods. John, how much impact do you think these floods will have when Germans go to the polls in September? The old rule in politics is there's an earthquake and the aftershocks are felt in politics. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true here. Mm -hmm. These sort of once-in-a-century floods took place. Mm -hmm. And that was the earthquake. And now we're look, trying to divine what the aftershocks will be. One, obviously, is that Climate and global warming and so on and so forth are sort of theoretical ideas mm -hmm. in politics on the ground, in voter politics. This makes a sort of a theoretical issue a very real issue. And on paper, the Greens, obviously, being who they are, should benefit. But Annalena is, you know, not the best candidate, probably not the one that should be leading the ticket. The CDU oppo people started to drip, drip out information about charges of resume, padding, plagiarism, which, by the way, are entirely convincing. Mm -hmm. So the question is, will the Greens get rid of her mm -hmm. and get somebody new? We don't obviously know the answer to that question. The same question applies to the CDU. Laughing in the background of a press briefing about the floods uh -huh. is just about the worst possible optic, as they say in the U.S., yeah. uh, one could imagine. And I wouldn't be surprised if both of them were no longer the faces of the parties in the next month. Really? So that would be a, that would be a quick switch. I think if you're the Greens, then like God has handed you the <laughs> the issue of all issues. Yeah. The one thing that, you know, prevents you from fully exploiting it is that your candidate has a bad habit of stealing other people's work and mm. lying about her record. Uh, maybe we got a new model here, you know. So here's another question for you. You mentioned that, that the tragedy of the floods has taken what was a sort of cerebral political issue, yeah. climate change, and made it manifest. Now, my question for you is, 
has the government response to the flooding been sufficient? Has it been well executed? So, of course, this being politics, you know, the recriminations have begun. Mm -hmm. The federal government in Germany, they did put out early warning that these torrential rains would come and that flooding would ensue, uh, quickly buck passing, obviously. I suspect that it's just a failure of imagination, really, that until it happens, you just can't imagine that something like this happens. It's a once-in-a-century or once-in-a-two-century event. Right. I mean, the thing about Germany, what's happened there, the floods, is that it's part of a much larger series of events related to the issue of climate. This summer, from a climate point of view, has been, I think, the beginning of a political shift. A catalyst, to be sure. All right, let's move on. Yes, let's. Public opinion polls in 2020 were worse than in any election cycle since 1980, according to a new report by the American Association for Public Opinion Research. The report says national polls in the presidential race were off by 3.9% on average, while state polls were off by 4.3%. The report goes on to say there are two likely causes. First, a high number of non-responses from Republican voters, and second, a surge of new voters that pollsters missed. John, I know that you disagree with these conclusions. From your point of view, the public generally misunderstands how polling works and what function it serves, and the 2020 polls were misread, not misexecuted. Tell us what you think. You know, the high number of non-responses from Republican voters is true, Mm -hmm. Uh, Very conservative voters don't trust the media, don't trust pollsters, and that's been true for a long time. And if anything, it's gotten more acute. Mm -hmm. The surge was what the pollsters call low-propensity voters, meaning people who have voted in not many elections prior suddenly get all worked up and they go to vote in the polls. That is certainly true. There was a surge, particularly in the rural areas. There was also a surge, obviously, in anti-Trump voters. So turnout went shooting upward. And also the workarounds that election officials did in state after state after state to make it possible for people to vote because of the pandemic, obviously, also juiced turnout big time. Mm -hmm. You know, there's an error margin of plus or minus three. This thing of saying the national polls were off by 3.9% on average is complete nonsense. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's true in the tables, right, that they built up. We have this Gallup poll, we have this Harris poll, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a fantasy to think that polling is this precise. It's not. It just isn't. And in the state polls, they were actually really good, okay? They were really, really good. I wrote a piece about why Trump might win maybe 10 days before the election. And what I did was I went to look at the state polls. And what state polls showed me was that Biden was at 46, 47, whatever. Trump was at 43, whatever. Trump, in state after state, Michigan, Pennsylvania, et cetera, was within the margin of error. Mm -hmm. Okay, Biden would be ahead 47, 43. What did that tell you? It told you that Biden was 47. He wasn't 50, right? He had not reached a majority, which meant that Trump was in it. Mm -hmm. So I thought, from just doing an analysis piece for the newsletter, the state polls basically told me the race is going to be really close, which it turned out to be. What happened was that the people who were interpreting the poll, more or less, not always, you know, proper caveats, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but basically they wanted Biden to win. 
Yeah. Right? So the way they read the poll was, oh, Biden's ahead by four, 47-43 in Michigan. Therefore, he's going to win by four. That's not what the poll said. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. I'm probably the only person in the world who gets upset by this. But when I read it this morning, I was like, you got to be kidding me. We got to hammer these guys. (laughs) All right. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to News Items. Jay Powell's first term as chair of the Federal Reserve is set to end in February of next year, and Democratic lawmakers are wondering whether Biden will bring Powell back for another four-year term. Powell was nominated to the position by President Trump, but in the past few decades, presidents have usually reappointed their predecessor's chair at least once. While Democrats are generally happy with Powell for making the full employment part of the Fed mandate a strong priority, some progressives might prefer to see a Fed chair act more aggressively against banks. John, you wrote in news items this morning that Powell will be reappointed. What makes you so sure of that? We're Team J, by the way. We are. Um, I don't see any political benefit to Biden from replacing Powell with someone else. Mm -hmm. And I think the one thing that Biden will hear again and again and again from Wall Street, but also from the financial community globally, is we like Jay, stick with him. I can't imagine that the Biden administration would be stupid enough to get rid of Powell and go find somebody that is more acceptable, quote unquote, to the Democratic Party's more progressive wing, let's put it that way. That, that That is political catastrophe. I am surprised that the progressive wing doesn't think that Jay Powell has been tough enough on banks. He refused to extend the SLR exemption, right? Yeah. He's pursued the most blatantly inflationary policies in like decades immemorial, and yet he's willing to stand on the inflation hawks. How is that not like great news for the progressive wing of the Democratic Party? I don't understand that. Well, I don't think it's about facts. I think it's about Jay Powell, you know, comes out of the financial world. Yeah. Right? It's perceived that any hiccup in the market, the Fed rushes in to, you know, liquefy an illiquid moment in XYZ market. And so they see somebody basically who, while he says and while he articulates the importance of full employment, What he's really there doing is making sure that the financial community's excesses don't lead to catastrophe, and therefore he's constantly bailing them out, Mm -hmm. right? That's sort of the anti-J narrative. Well, look, successive Fed chairs have been, as Mohammed Alarian would put it, essentially forced into this position of having to carry the entire global economy on their shoulders because of politicians' inability or unwillingness to act. Like, they failed to take action, and so it's forced central bank heads to do so. It's not like Jay Powell being like some power-mad, you know, being clubby with the financial elite, right? I mean, he's been sort of forced into a position he didn't necessarily want, which is having to sort of like engineer a recovery from these catastrophes, right? Yeah. I mean, I think if you go back to the great financial crisis, you know, the Fed basically bailed out the world. The fact remains that because central banks have historically in the past bailed out financial markets, it has sort of freed up politicians to spend their time engaging in things like culture wars rather than shouldering the fiscal 
burden, no matter where you stand on the ideological spectrum, there's a fiscal burden involved in political governance that both parties have abdicated completely. And it's been left to the Jay Powell's of this world to pick up after them, right? Yeah. Well, he goes up on the hill and every so often he says, it's not just monetary policy that can carry the ball here. There has to yeah. be fiscal support or whatever he says. And everybody says, no, 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 we don't want to talk about that. <laughs> you know, yeah. That would require us to make choices. Uh, so you just keep bailing everything out, and uh-huh. when it all goes to hell, we'll blame you. Yeah. I think, to get back to sort of the original point, that, you know, you don't want to open all this up. You just say, mm-hmm. you know what, Jay gets another four years, he's done a good job, we like him, I'm sorry, activist wing of the party, but actually by appointing Jay and having you all upset about it works to mm-hmm. my political benefit because it makes me appear more moderate, so game over. We're sticking with Jay. We're sticking with Jay, and we got to move on. Let's move Let's on. move on. All right. Good times. Rebecca, the index fund turns 50 this month. 50 years young. Today, there are over $16 trillion invested in index funds. That just seems like an incredible number to me. That number, $16 trillion, will only continue to grow. And, of course, there is no shortage of index fund naysayers. Robin Wigglesworth has a book on index funds coming out in October called Trillions. He recently outlined two of the biggest concerns in an FT column. The first and oldest complaint is that index funds distort markets, but the more salient concern may be that, as Wigglesworth puts it, quote, the economics of scale and indexing mean that the big invariably get much bigger, unquote. In other words, as more investors pour more money into index funds, the biggest players, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, will only get bigger. Rebecca, can you help our listeners understand the implications of the massive growth in index funds? And do you worry that it'll lead to an ever greater, ever tighter, I guess, concentration of wealth and influence? Well, look, I mean, the shift to passive has been underway for many years like many innovations on Wall Street. This emerged from a market inefficiency, and it emerged from a basically altruistic and democratizing impulse, which is that you get this kind of random walk theory, which holds that, you know, the best indicator of where stocks are going to go tomorrow is where stocks are at today, and that stocks essentially follow a random walk, and that a monkey throwing, you know, darts at a dartboard could beat the market just as frequently as your average portfolio manager. And that when you factor in transaction costs, et cetera, the benefit of investing with an individual discretionary portfolio manager is not attractive compared to just buying an index fund that holds all the stocks in an index. Right. Who can argue with that? If you're like a mom and pop investor, you don't benefit from the information asymmetries that used to exist. You know, everything's online. It's hard to really play an information edge. So now what you play is like a scale edge. For your average retail investor, A, you don't have access to an individual portfolio manager at a wealth management or asset management company. Second, you don't have the time or the expertise to really dig into the numbers and calculate projected future earnings. I mean, so why not just buy an index fund? The thing is that given all these factors, index fund providers like BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street have just gotten huge. It's almost like the uh, active investors are like the underdogs. It's funny because there's been this kind of reversal 
in roles now. I should say. Right, where it's like the democratic investment product has become the big guy. Individual portfolio managers who are willing to take the other side of the, and say like, no, this is an overvalued stock. This is an undervalued stock. This is what fair market value is. The classic like Graham and Dodd value investor. I mean, they perform a valuable role in financial markets. Plus, when you have this passive investment strategy, I mean, you see correlations between different market asset classes that are then sort of amplified by the sheer heft of the passive investing environment. Right. It's a huge shift. It's been underway for a number of years. Nobody seems to be in a position to stop it. I mean, they say that of active managers, that if you take 10 active managers, one of them is genuinely talented, one of them is genuinely untalented, and the rest are some variation of lucky to some degree. There's like, they're on the spectrum of lucky. But that's life. I mean, what, right. <laughs> tell me where that's not true. <laughs> right. What do you think, John? I mean, do you hold ETFs? I Are do. you an owner of any ETFs? Yeah, as as yeah. am I. So I'm not there trying to knock yeah. uh, trying to knock ETFs, but yeah. I don't know what I think actually mm-hmm. about it. I do think the rise of BlackRock is yeah. really an important development, if you will, in the last 20, 25 years. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Vanguard, I mean, Robin has written a whole book about it, right? It's yeah. basically the Vanguard story. Mm-hmm. But I'm I don't know what happens next. That's the part I don't have any idea what happens next. Financial markets exist as this kind of push and this pull between different actors. And that's what makes a market, right? You have a bull and a bear. You have two sides. That makes a market. You have hedgers and you have speculators. That's what makes a market in futures. You have active investors who are doing like the bottom-up work and the Graham and Dodd value investing or the top-down macro level investing. And then you have the passive investors. And you need that push and pull. And the concern here is that passive strategies have become too big. And it upsets a certain balance in that ecosystem so that the whole thing is out of whack. So it's all right. about, like most things in life, right? It's about balance, right? And that's the concern. The market needs differently motivated and differently oriented actors. I mean, it needs sort of like a diversity of motivations, a diversity of investment timeframes, and a, a diversity of rationales. That's the only way you get to a sort of liquid, well-functioning, price-transparent market. Right. And that's what we all want, isn't it? I mean, that's like a, <laughs> those are basic market principles. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. I'm looking forward to reading uh, Robin Wigglesworth's book. That will certainly be on my reading list. All right, so that's it from us today on News Items. If you'd like a deeper dive into the topics that we discussed today, as well as many more, you got to check out John's newsletter. It's newsitems.substack.com and go for the premium edition where you get John's always interesting and riveting analysis. Thank you for that. Those who are interested in what Rebecca describes as the global market of things should visit her website, investableuniverse.com. It's terrific. I cannot recommend it highly enough. News Items, the podcast, is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our engineer is Simran Singh, and we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with my interview with Alice Hill author of the upcoming book, The Fight for Climate After COVID-19. We'll see you then.